Good morning, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us. Well, I guess we're good afternoon now in some areas, right? Some people are yes. stepping off to have some lunch. Um, I'm still getting used to the new time, but uh, welcome, everybody, and welcome, Stephanie. Stephanie Allard is here with me today. We are uh, we we are co-presenters or, or co-podcastees um, on the Compliance Guy on Monday afternoons. Yes, yes. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Um, today is National Souffle Day. I will not be having souffle tonight, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> it's uh, not my thing, nor do I know how to cook souffle, nor does anybody want me to try to cook a souffle. But uh, it's a National Souffle Day. Our friend Terry Fletcher loves to hear the National Day. Um, there were a couple of times, even when I've been traveling where she will actually text me and remind me what day it is. <laughs> hey, Christine, it's national taco day. <laughs> See, I can get behind taco day, not souffle day. <laughs> exactly. So today we're going to kind of dive into chapter 10 of the guidelines, talking about respiratory system and, and respiratory conditions and and I wanted Stephanie to come on so that she could give you a, a perspective of, I know you do a lot of auditing. And so you get to see when things don't go right. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? My mind has just kind of been working through and processing all of this after you let me know, you know, what chapter we're going to be working in. Um, you know, one of the things that I go to and probably because of my auditing and everything like that, I just go right into all of these deep spaces. But when we think about ICD-10, the issues that we typically have really stem from the EMR system. Mm -hmm. So as I was reading through chapter 10, just to remind myself of all the nuances yesterday, I just was thinking to myself, you know what, there's a lot of detail in this chapter, but when do we actually see that information displayed in a note when, you know, most of the time providers are using pick lists, they have a favorite list. Um, it, it can be difficult to navigate a search function in an EMR. And I usually do not see that level of specificity. I agree with you. And, you know, I think that providers sometimes have this misunderstanding that oh, well, if the EMR doesn't ask for it, then it's not necessary. And, you know, I, I'll be honest, I struggle with this a lot. I know that it's, it's unethical to teach the business of medicine in med school. I get that. And, and I want my doctor focused on me. I don't want my doctor focused on the, the details of getting paid. Of course, I need him to get paid so that he can keep the door open so that I can come back to him. It's just, it's a struggle there because they don't understand what's required from that payment perspective. They're simply have that blind faith in the EMR system that nothing against EMRs, mind you, but it's a tool. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I find when we do have issues with this set of codes or any other set of diagnosis codes it's really helpful to show the provider visually what options are even available. Because if you think about a search function in an EMR, it typically is set up in a way where you have to know the language from the code book or you're not gonna get where you need to go. Um, you know, we also, or I should say, I find that we still are dealing with this whole culture that 
diagnosis codes don't really play into what's done on the profi side, right? Mm, right. You know, the, the facility, the DRG, it has a large impact, but there's still a lot of times where that's, you know, just blown by and it's not really realized that it plays a large role in what is being said about a patient. And when we think about respiratory disorders, I know not all of them are heavily, um, you know, within the elderly population, but if we think about things like chronic respiratory failure and, and items like that, that is in that particular set of patients most of the time. And one of the things I'm finding is that it's really not playing in well when they are trying to meet the requirements for risk adjustment. It's really <laughs> the words out of my mouth, Stephanie. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I said, I think I said this on the other podcast last week or whenever it was, but I have that particular client who is getting their entire claims denied over diagnoses. So if something's unspecified or if it's, you know, a situation where things are not maybe sequenced properly or it's a secondary diagnosis and they haven't given the primary, that's kicking an entire claim back, stopping reimbursement, um, you know, making AR that much worse. And it's all coming down now to ICD-10, which I haven't seen it at this level in the past. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, just a couple of things come to mind when, when we're talking. So recently I did a deep dive into the OIG's work plan uh, for Medicare Advantage plans, because in the last three years, they've completed OIG, it's completed 13 audits of Medicare Advantage plans. And they were looking for coding errors because again, for risk adjustment, diagnosis is directly related to payment. And across the board, all 13 of these Medicare Advantage payers, one of the big things was respiratory failure. And I kind of make a joke about this. And I shared this with you before. I, I made a joke that in an office setting, how many times does a patient schedule acute respiratory failure? So, hey, I'm, I'm calling to make an appointment. I think that in three, maybe four weeks, I'm going to have an acute respiratory failure. So I kind of <laughs> like to be there in the office when I have it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not the case, really. Yes. I yeah. would have a problem if my doctor discharged me from the hospital in acute respiratory failure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's one thing I was going to say um, to piggyback on that. You know, a lot of times when we see issues with the use of that particular set of codes, it is more so stemming from a hospital stay. And, you know, we also have to think about the fact that when we're working with our providers on this side, we still have the whole facility that, that depends on the documentation of our providers. So if they're not aware of sequencing, if they're not aware of the different right. specifics, that can have direct impacts on DRG. Um, obviously hospitals typically will employ CDI and in some other positions to help with that. But you know, if you have a provider who sees patients occasionally in the hospital, it's not their main setting, then this can be an issue when this mm -hmm. comes up. And I think you, that's another thing you said that that's awesome, Stephanie. You know, when we do have providers that go to the hospital and they're hounded by CDI and they're hounded by the coding department, medical record department, I think they need to remember that whatever they're being hounded for in the hospital setting, 
maybe they should be going back to the office and talking to their internal, maybe pro-fee or risk-based um, coders and billers and saying, you know, this person over here in the hospital said that I wasn't documenting this correctly. Do you see that too? Like that would be a great, wouldn't that be awesome? Yes. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that comes to mind is when you have the whole process of providers piggybacking off of each other where they're, you know, selecting admission diagnoses and using them all the way through. So, you know, if maybe they call in pulmonary for a consult, they're going to expect them to get it right so that they can use that and bring it yeah. forward. Um, there, there's a lot of variations there, but, you know, even sometimes in specialty, they're more aware of what the different clinical um, conditions are, the specificity of that. But depending on the background, depending on the departments they have, depending on the support, the resources, it doesn't mean that a specialist automatically is going to be more specific. And sometimes I find the opposite. You know, they may give us one yeah. specific primary diagnosis and then that's enough to get a claim out the door. So there's no secondaries. I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. I see that a lot. And um, I, I still go back. I think we talked about this on one of the other podcasts too. I go back to the gems mapping and I think, you know, we are eight years now post ICD 10. Why are we still looking at gems? There's 80,000 Diagnose uh, CM codes, not even talking PCS, but there's 80,000 CM codes where we, we left ICD-9 with 17,000. That's a huge difference. That, that in itself should impress a provider that the unspecified diagnosis is the exception, not the rule. Right, right. And, you know, I remember years ago when we initially were dealing with those mappings and talking with providers about the issues and documentation, and it all comes down to the mappings and they've got mm -hmm. that particular setting turned on. Um, they, oh, I Did still I there? You? I just had my yeah, entire here. computer cut out. Oh, okay. Don't you I love don't know technology. if I'm back. You're back. You're good. We got you, okay. Stephanie. I had complete two black screens. That was a little weird. Um, but with the mappings, you know, we'd have issues and I go back to the provider and then go to the practice admin and find out, oh, well, you know, it was easier to put it in this other language for them. But then you look at the mappings and whoever in the IT space decided the wording of the mappings, it didn't even link directly to ICD-10 code descriptions. So there really have been a lot of ongoing issues there too. And, and I hear that from providers. I hear that they went into the search function in the EMRs there to, to find a diagnosis. And there was that, that gap between maybe what ICD-10 or what the IT person interpreted it to be or um, the way that it was entered in their, their selected special codes, right? Yes. Um, and, and it doesn't meet the same requirements. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I see a lot, and this drives me nuts, is things like the unspecified flu. When then you look down and you see that they've tested for A and B and they've tested for Zinka and they've tested for swine and H1N1 and they've tested for all of these and the diagnosis is unspecified. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I get asked a lot about, you know, what what is the responsibility after the fact? You have the base documentation that supports something more specific, but then the way that the EMR system works, they're selecting a code and it's dropping in a code description. So, you know, we do have conversations that, that we deal with back and forth as to, you know, how strict is the practice going to be as far as making a provider go back and select a different code, which mm -hmm. is an entire addendum process. Right. Um, you know, from my perspective, at least the, the documentation that I'm looking to anyways, I, I'm never going to code just off of the fact that they've selected a code and the right. default language went in. So at least we have the specifics that are needed further than that. But, you know, I think that's an, an added burden that some people do take on to fully correct and reflect the other diagnosis in that note. Absolutely. Same with an exacerbation. Right. That's another problem with COPD, asthma, whichever that may be. Um, you know, we can see active respiratory complaints, but they never take the leap to say, yeah, they're exacerbated. And, and we need that because the guidelines even specifically give that definition of exacerbation to support the use of that term in the code. So, yeah. you know, it's, we, we need that feedback from those providers there and providers have got to stop assuming that, and I, please, I say this respectfully to all providers out there because, you know, I, I really am an advocate for you all, but you've got to stop relying on what uh, somebody told you that you should be reporting or what everybody else you think reports or worse, anybody who reads this note, any provider that reads this note would know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Please remember that there are a very few amount of people that go through 8, 10, 12 years of med school to process insurance claims, yes. they, that, right? That doesn't happen. And yeah. um, so you're really dealing with administrative people who are following the guidelines. So work with us here. Yeah. And that's one thing too, you know, I try to simplify if I find a particular area um, like I was saying before, showing them the code options, it can be overwhelming if we're going back and saying, hey, you know, this stuff isn't right. It's not specific enough. You know, this is one more thing that you have to do. So from a coder or auditor or education, educator standpoint, we need to realize that we can't just keep inundating with information. We need to be a part of the solution as well. And sometimes that involves um, conversations with IT departments mm -hmm. or developers and talking about workflow, talking about a pick list that's open. We do know that, you know, providers are in the habit of copying their previous notes and bringing them forward. I so think, sometimes uh, Ken said that ahead. earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you continually get the wrong information day to day. So you know, that that's something where we need to educate on compliance, copy and bringing forward copy and paste. But maybe that's a part of the solution. You know, we have to do this one time to get it into your pick list or to what you're bringing forward if it's your own note. Right. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of things that that play into each of the different areas. With well, coding. you know, I also in the in the office setting where we utilize medical assistants or uh, nurses in the office to assist in collecting data. Uh, I've been going back to a lot of practices recently and saying, maybe if we invest our time 
there with the, the initial person who makes that interaction, maybe they can assist in painting the picture a little bit better for the provider so that they can come in and say, um, the patient presents today with uh, coughing, sneezing for three days. It's productive. They've tried this. Um, not that, again, I know that the rules have changed for how we select a level of service for payment, but we didn't change what's good medicine. And most of the providers that I talk to, they'll tell you, of course I need to know how long they've had these symptoms or what did it start and how did it progress or what they've tried at home. Did they try steam in the shower to open up the lungs? Did they, what have they been trying to, to see how bad this is, you know, um, my husband doesn't go to the doctor ever. And by the time he shows up, the crackles, the rails, the ronks, the, it's horrible. But to know how long this has been going on to get to this, if it's been two days, it might be something acute. If it's been going on for two, three, four months, this might be bad, right? Yeah. So the, what the medical assistants bring into the record, I think we spend some time with them explaining the, that importance then that might even help providers or um, help coders know how to properly query because that information is there to, to pick off of. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's one of those things too, where when you think about, again, the different process, I have had situations where I'll meet with the provider and then they'll say, well, I have a scribe or I have an MA. And it's like, you know, I, I've been thinking about that more and more when I set up education sessions with providers. If there's a scribe, well, guess what? That scribe should probably be coming in with you. You know, you are ultimately as the provider responsible for what's going into your documentation, but that may save you some time if they're hearing the same thing that the provider's hearing at the time of the, the feedback from an audit. Um, and, and just workflow in general. You know, a lot of times mm -hmm. I, I have met with MAs or nurses and they feel like it's not their responsibility. And there's only so much we can do from an education standpoint, especially because we're coming externally in right. to help them with that. Um, I can't force anybody's hand. So it needs to be a larger conversation typically with practice administrators, the provider they're working with um, to really figure out you know, who really needs to be doing what as a part of that. That's why I think it's important that we have clinical liaisons from the ancillary clinical side and the professional clinical side in your compliance meetings. When you're talking about what are you going to be reviewing? What are the goals for improvement? What are the results of an internal or even an external audit? What What's going on so that we have that full picture from all different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I had an interesting situation where one of the clients had, um, I'm not going to name it, but it's an mm -hmm. EMR system that has smart functions built in. Mm -hmm. So it's supposed to automate a lot of the calculation of an E&M service. So one of the things that I found is that, you know, obviously specificity can be an issue sometimes, but the way that everything comes together from each portion of the note is how it's impacting the system's ability to choose presenting problems. Right. So in that situation, one of the things I found out is that the, it was either MAs or nurses that do the initial intake with the patient were prompting 
you know, whether it was acute or chronic or showing the duration or showing the frequency. And it was affecting um, the level of service overall. There was a lot of undercoding. And I was surprised with the specialty that I had seen so many, even twos, level twos, level threes. And, you know, it plays into the specificity of not just the diagnoses that are reported, but if you are starting to use these things, which a lot of developers are trying to implement this. So, you know, you really have to think full picture. And, and like I was saying before, when people have not put a high importance on diagnoses, yep. I don't think it's realized yet the full extent of how this is impacting the industry right now. My, uh, my knee jerk reaction when you said that was I was thinking of infectious disease and I was thinking of the software that takes acute signs and symptoms and gives it the problem complexity of maybe an acute uncomplicated. But if we're talking about an infectious disease, um, tuberculosis, we're talking about um, you know, something major, whether it be an HIV related, uh, pneumocystic Carini pneumonia, right? That's not going to be an, a low problem complexity. They're already at infectious disease, but, but like you said, if it's coming in as that acute and it's triggering the system to think of it as uncomplicated, then it will downcode a 212, a 213 for a provider. And imagine the loss of revenue because you're relying on the software to make those right. decisions for you. That's, yeah. that's another way to look at that in a more profound impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the risk adjustment side of things, you know, it, it depends on the organization, but we're finding more and more clients who are part of an ACO organization, mm -hmm. the accountable care organizations where there's money attached to the way that risk adjustment is done. The Medicare Advantage plans, even outside of the extreme denials like I'm seeing, there's still that focus on them where I've seen, it, it was interesting. I, I had a project where I went around with an ACO years ago. Scott Craft and I actually um, double teamed this one. But we went uh, in the D.C. area for weeks. We you know would switch weeks on and off, and we went into all of these small practices to educate. And it was really eye-opening to me to see what an ACO was looking for from a quality perspective. And one thing that I was probably naively shocked by, mm -hmm. but it, it was interesting to see that the providers with some of the large payers, their scores that are displayed for them as a provider on a website were tied into things like quality measures and risk right. adjustment and specificity of their diagnoses. So, you know, there's things happening in the background with the data that doesn't have an immediate financial impact, but, you know, the payers are using this in a different way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, I just had this talk yesterday about those performance measures and how they impact the Medicare Advantage plans, or even if we get outside of that and we go MIPS, you know, there's some performance measures there. And some of those are tied to specific diagnosis and how we care for that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to, to point out one thing that um, I see on the risk side when we talk about pneumonia and ventilator um, associated pneumonias. And the guideline is really clear that it has to be documented that it is 
that the pneumonia is due to the respirator or the ventilator and not that someone is on a ventilator and has pneumonia or was put on a respirator because they have pneumonia. And I think that that in itself could skew a risk value there. It could skew because that's one of the very few pneumonias that actually does have a risk adjustment value to it as opposed to just your old unspecified pneumonia who doesn't risk adjust. Right. Right. And um, and it's funny you bring that up because mm-hmm. I haven't even seen a provider be that specific before. So it's either community acquired or not, but we're right. talking pneumonia typically. <laughs> but I've, I've seen on an, on a risk adjustment audit where they've specifically stated that ventilator pneumonia um, because let's be honest, sometimes the Medicare Advantage plans will provide them with a list yeah. or a handbook or a guide and say that if this, then this. What's missing is the requirements from ICD-10 guidelines or um, the ASA or AHA's coding uh, clinics or things like that that we really rely on for correct coding to be supported on that CDI level. And we get lost sometimes because of all of these guidances or recommendations that we get. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, when I see the opposite and they're being too specific and the rest Mm -hmm. of the note doesn't match, sometimes that's stemming from conversations and, you know, the risk adjustment process can be confusing. I talked to some providers who are like, well, I thought I was just doing what the ACO asked, or I thought I was doing what the Medicare Advantage plans told me I have to do. That's exactly what I hear over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to do this. I have to do this. And then, you know, and I worry about risk adjustment because of course now the Medicare Advantage plans are going to have to start paying that money back. Oh yeah. And, and yeah. they're not going to do that and, and not um, fold out those consequences to the provider's offices in one way or another. And whether we see it in 20, 2024 or we see it in 2025, I really do believe that some of these practices that may have received a skewed information um, that they will start seeing decreased capitations. They'll see decreased um, bonus structures that are coming from those payers. They might even find a way to recoup some of the money or maybe uh, find a way to slow down reimbursement to those payers by prepayment reviews or things of that nature. And um, I, I worry about what it's going to look like next year or the year after for those providers Um, especially if they don't immediately implement some education and change the way that they're documenting to support these diagnosis codes. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because the client I've been working with who has the high volume of ICD-10 only denials, Mm -hmm. the payers, there's two payers that I noticed were doing it right now. And they've both been in the news for owing millions of dollars back for risk adjustment. (laughs) So you know, are they utilizing, I don't know the technology on their side, but clearly they're starting to utilize some smart tools here to help things from their side, because it does impact them first. We don't need one of these to see what's coming down the pike. Okay. It's, it's pretty clear what's coming down the pike. Um, we just have to, we just have to look a little further down the road 
um, just to see what's coming at us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the last thing I want to wrap up with tonight, this afternoon is, is uh, the vaping related disorders. So they haven't heard a lot about it. Now, no. when vaping became popular, one of my kids started vaping and I was like, whoa, this is weird. I don't know that this is a good thing for you to be doing. No, 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 mom. You don't know. It's better than smoking. Well, neither one of them is great. <laughs> and no. I don't know what that's going to happen. And, and, you know, I made those little lungs inside of you that I, I'm hoping that you would cherish. No. <laughs> I'm a little dramatic. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, I, I lay it on pretty thick. So uh, I am a Latin mom and I do lay on the guilt just as I was by my mother and by her, by her mother. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's important to remember that when we start to see the use of that vaping related, that the providers have to make that connection that we believe that this is due to the patient's use of vape. So um, again, really important that we start collecting some of this data when it's supported, but that we start telling our providers that we're we're not going to be able to really see the effects if we don't start documenting when they truly believe that this could be related to vaping. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because when I have seen vaping addressed, it's more so in actually in pediatrics where they're mm-hmm. asking about drug alcohol use that's typically in there as well. So it's interesting you say that because when you read, you know, acute notes, for example, that are respiratory related, it's not often that I see something mentioned. Actually, I know I've never seen something mentioned myself personally mm-hmm. about vaping in general, even if they vape. So right. that, that's a really good point. We're not really there yet from the thought process when it comes to documentation. I've also not seen it in many of the major EMRs where they ask specifically vaping. Usually it's alcohol, drugs, tobacco, but the vaping gets left off. And uh, I've got millennials, Gen Zers, and whatever's (laughs) after that in my life. And I'll tell you that if you don't specifically say vaping, it's off the radar. I mean, my generation, you know, we'll go through the whole gamut. No, no drugs, no alcohol, no, no smoking, no vaping, no thinking about vaping, no, you know, little nothing. But the younger people, if you're not specific, then it goes right off their radar. So if you said, do you use tobacco? Nope. Mm-hmm. Gone. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's a good point, too, about the EMR. You know, it just goes back to the outcome of reviews and what we can do to try and improve that on our side um, to help bring that to light, to help. You know, there's so many times I, I meet with different IT staff and developers and I mean, they're amazing. They do oh, yeah. everything that I can't do. I always feel like it's a magic request when I say, here's the problem. What can you do? Um, but you have to work together because they don't know our side in and out. They're creating things, trying to make it easier, but they don't know what we know. So that's true. I, I have a friend of mine who um, is in, in the IT part. Actually, she she speaks 5010 language. And that's that, okay. that fascinates me because I've I with high tech and, and HIPAA, you know, we understand that we went from 4010 to 5010. And she understands all that coding language in that respect. Um, and so sometimes we'll sit and talk about it. But like you said, 
they're they're more of that that computer coding mind and they don't just because they have the same similar name as we do coders mm -hmm. their coding has nothing to do with our coding and at some point we need to find a marriage between the two so that it's effective yeah well we're out of time stephanie can you believe that I know it went fast. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about so much great stuff. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and lending your perspective and your insight and your experience. Um, those of you that are not connected with Stephanie on LinkedIn, please do so. She is such a wealth of information. Um, and if you have any needs, any questions, reach out to Stephanie. I know she'd be happy to hear from you. Yes. And thank you, Christine. Thanks. I'll see you on Monday on the round yes. table. Yes. All right. Take care. Bye everyone. Bye. Thanks for watching. 